Hi and welcome to the podcast, you're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with my brother, Henry Fraser, PhD student at Oxford University in law. We talk about the trials and tribulations of the PhD, what exactly is a PhD and what does it entail for the human brain. We also talk about uh, the Venn diagram overlap between bigotry and rationality, the sliding scale between science and reason, and uh, schools, whether we should bother with them anymore. That is our conversation. I hope you enjoy listening to it. I enjoyed having it as I always do enjoy talking to my brother. He's a good he's a good egg slash human. If you want to give him a message, he's not really online very much. You can follow him on his Facebook page, Henry Fraser, or you can just email me, alicerfraser at gmail.com, and I'll pass on the message and we'll talk about it uh, if you have a question in the next episode that I do with him. I will inevitably do another one before we part ways again. So that uh this episode's brought to you as ever by my subscribers on patreon patreon.com slash alice fraser uh there's also my blog goes up there semi-regularly it will become daily through the edinburgh fringe if you want to follow it there otherwise um you can just follow me on twitter at alliterative i have shows i have preview shows coming up in london if you're in london and then i'll be in edinburgh for the whole month of august if you have friends there or are in london or in edinburgh Hit me up, ask for the details of my shows, or I'll put them up on my Twitter and my Facebook page as and when they arise. Uh, thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoy this episode. I enjoyed talking, so that's a mutually beneficial arrangement, I guess. You're having tea with Alice. less tea with Alice than nutritional powerhouse with Alice. I wonder how it will affect the content of the podcast. Mm, mm. A less reflective and more sort of um, powerhouse sort of meal. Definitely more energy intensive to drink. Mm. Probably some longer pauses in this podcast. There's a chewing element that isn't often present in a tea kind of scenario. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How have you been thinking about anything interesting of late that you wanted to talk about? Or uh, wrestling with is, any complex that ideas? Is, that is such a um, that is such a um, cop out question. <laughs> a cop out question in it's what like, way? Think of something to say. <laughs> <laughs> That's the whole point of this podcast. Is I want you. No, it's not just think of something to say. It's think of, of something to say that you've been having difficulty with. Or that you want to say, but have no other forum to say. I mean, that you'd like to lay out an idea or play with an idea or, you know, what... I mean, we can just talk about stuff and then come to it, but I don't want to patronise you. Um, Nothing that I feel especially qualified to say. Um... Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) Um... 
Well, two two things, three things. I just, I mean, I've just been following the news. I mean, so, the last podcast we did, we ended up talking about podcasts, which was really interesting. Doing sort of a running review of the podcast that you listened to. Yeah, well, sort of a summary of what appealed to me about them. Mm. Um, given my particular um, tastes and proclivities. Yeah, yeah, and eccentricities. What have I been thinking about? Um, Alright, let me give you a list and then we can decide which ones. Okay. So I've done about, this outside the podcast. Yeah, you really you put up and then ask questions. But so um, and again, I could edit this out, but I'm not yeah, going to. Please do. Um, so yeah, I think about my thesis. I think a lot about my thesis. Getting close to the end, and uh, just thinking about why it's so hard. Um, the nature of it, the nature of the beast, what it says about you, why it's yeah, why it's so, so hard because of what it says. People don't know exactly said. what is entailed how many words is this mm. let me finish the list mm-hmm. um so to the news all this horrible news where um really divisive polarizing issues coming up like racism or racial inequality racial bias in america um uh terrorism and on the one hand, and uh, sort of jihadism on the one hand, and again, the bigotry, Islamophobia on the other hand, and the delicate operation involved in actually trying to talk about the causes and the solutions um, that sort of boggles the mind how tough it is to do um, for anyone with any agenda to, to get anywhere. Um, and then... Because there's so many sort of hot-button words or phrases or you're walking a very fine line or... Yeah, well... Yeah, because you're walking a fine line because rational arguments, their benefit might, I don't know, be outweighed by the detriment insofar as they give cover to real bigotry. So non-bigoted arguments that, that are... That are controversial, but uh, and unpopular. Mm. You know, on the one hand, the benefits of actually having exposure, having that as part of a discussion, and then the detriments to the extent that it, it gives cover to crazies. Um, the Venn diagram overlap. I mean, particularly with terrorism, there's a massive Venn diagram overlap between thinly veiled racism and genuine sort of liberal concern. Well, yeah, I think, I, well, I think, yeah, I suppose this to put all those issues, uh, you know, because again, I'm, you know, I don't really feel qualified to talk about politics and identity politics, but I do feel qualified to talk about language and terminology and narrative because that's what I spend my time doing. So I do feel like I can talk about that and the difficulties with the language mm. uh, and the way that it kind of gets people um, into corners. So those are the themes, those are the themes. The themes, well... So would you like to start with the boring PhD or would you like to start with language? I reckon we talk, do a quick pressy of the boring PhD and your um, psychological battle with it Mm -hmm. uh, and then talk about the language and terminology stuff Mm -hmm. and then I want to talk a little bit about rhetoric versus science 
because I've been thinking about this recently in terms of... um, I read a really interesting article about gay rights and trans rights and the way that a lot of the battle to have those rights entrenched in law has been waged by sort of rhetorical, really useful rhetorical arguments but then basing those rights on those arguments, those arguments are themselves based, not necessarily based in solid science. Science which is either being done or not done, being encouraged or discouraged because the results may or may not prove what the rhetoric is saying. Mm. So, for example, the uh, born this way argument for gay rights, I was born this way, I can't help it, is a really powerful rhetorical tool because in an argument with someone you go why would I choose this this is how I am and should I be punished for being born this way mm-hmm. that's really good way to convince someone of something but what if you find out that there is a pill you could take that that would give you straightness or whatever that could affect your sexuality then having the rights that are entrenched in law based on this assumption that the science will back up the born this way up. Do you see what I mean? Yes, yes, yes. That we need to think about the rhetoric we're using and whether it's affecting an immediate goal or kind of setting us up for a really problematic anti-science fight. Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah, I think it's called the the theory dependency of... Oh, I can't remember the name. But it sort of ties... I, the reason I want to talk about that third is because I think it ties in a little bit to your your sort of Islamophobia, bigotry, Venn diagram stuff because the argument that people use a lot when... Liberal-minded people say, well, for example, Islam has really problematic ideas about women and homosexuality. Often what people say is, that's really dangerous. To say that is really dangerous because it will be used by bigots. Those arguments will be used by bigots to justify bad behaviour or, you know, racism or bashings or firebombing of mosques. Or crazy policy suggestions like Trump. Yeah. You know, talking about expelling Muslims or yeah. not letting Muslims in or registering Muslims or now in Australia, um, what's the face? Um, yeah, that completely unqualified lady who said, as a mother, we should kick out Muslims, basically. Or we not stop, let them in. We should, not, we should stop. Um, well, we, should the pause, point. we should pause. We should give it. We should properly attribute her name. Attribute her name. Oh, why, why give her more pause. airtime? I can look her up on, on Twitter, but... Yeah, just look her up. Just look up hashtag as we a need, mother. We need a producer. No, but what's her name? What's her name? Um, her name is Idiots McGee. You okay. can cut. You can cut out the the waiting time. Sonia Kruger. Sonia Kruger. Name. Yeah. Um. So yeah, the idea that using certain arguments or exploring certain territory, whether it's in argument or in this case or in the, what I want to talk about third, in science, um, people saying, oh, you shouldn't do science in this area. 
if it looks like it's proving X or Y, because if it does prove X or Y, then it will be really dangerous. So, for example, if you proved that uh, you could take a pill to stop you being trans or stop you being gay, or that, as some science recently came out, saying that suicide rates don't drop with early intervention surgeries for children yeah. who are trans, so there are other issues at stake that cause trans children to commit suicide other than not being allowed to transition early. But that whole, there was a scientific study that was shut down because of objections from the trans community saying that if people, if that science comes out, people will use that to prevent people from getting surgery, to prevent, because the, the rhetoric is that it's life-saving surgery. Well, that's may, difficult, You know what I mean? That's difficult because then what you're really talking about is you're having an argument about welfare where there are incommensurable ideas of welfare being put forward on either side. So one side is saying, you know, the measure of welfare is the extent to which uh, the, 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 the possibility or the statistical proportion of people who, are, who, who don't kill themselves as opposed to who kill themselves. And the other is saying, well, the measure of welfare is the sense of, you know, identity satisfaction or, um, you know, of, of addressing the dysmorphia, gender yeah. dysmorphia. So, but the, I think the point is there that the rhetoric and the science may or may not diverge, but the fact is that the rhetoric shut down the science in this case because part of the rhetoric was that it was life-saving surgery, which it may or may not be. We won't know now because that study got shut down. Yeah. On the risk that it will be used, that science comes out that contradicts the rhetoric and then that will be used, or that complicates the rhetoric even, that complicates the idea of, of why these children are suicidal. Yeah. And maybe there are other things that you need to deal with than just the surgery. But that that is sort of intolerable because you've based these rights and social acceptance on the sense that it's so important that people will kill themselves if they're not allowed to have. Well, that's where intellectual honesty comes into play, doesn't it? You know, really the solution to that problem is intellectual honesty and to concede, concede the arguments that don't um, support your position, <laughs> concede that they don't, and, to, and if you think your position is still tenable, then to support it with other arguments. I mean, that's just that's uh, that's just a matter of intellectual honesty, yeah. isn't it? Uh, it's if you if if you want to suppress evidence that doesn't confirm an opinion, well, you can't get anywhere. Well, you can get anywhere. That's the point. Well, I think yeah. people are getting places. Well, let's start start with your. But ultimately, do you get anywhere when when that happens? You know. All that all that happens is you undermine your credibility as a as an advocate of a position, because as soon as you, for example, if you then want to rely on science, a scientific argument of another kind, well, your opponent immediately comes back and says, "How dare you rely? How how dare you to pretend to be supporting your position with science when you suppressed countervailing positions? That's not science. That's just cherry picking. That's just confirmation bias." 
that's just empty rhetoric, that's just posturing. You know, I think ultimately, in the long run, in the long run, it undoes the credibility of, of one's argument, whether it's about that issue or about any other issue. But the problem, and there's a fantastic article in The Guardian about this, is in fact, almost nobody has <laughs> any credibility. Um, you know, people discount credibility and integrity entirely. You yeah. know, how they, you know, there was this article about the rise of Trump and, and popular demagogues and, and the success of the Brexit campaign in the face of expert opinion and in the face of fact. You know, the, the arguments were non-factual arguments. Um, yeah, I think that's one of the really interesting things about our dad, actually, because he has an enormous amount of credibility even talking about things that he doesn't really know very much about because he will always say hmm let me think about it and give like a really measured answer well that's right well I mean credibility has to be based on what can be based on two things either you know Mm. and you can and you can demonstrate with empirical evidence um your conclusion you can you can make it out or as is often the case when you're talking about really complicated social issues there is some evidence and but in order to really draw persuasive conclusions from it you need to go to a point where the evidence itself won't give you an answer it won't give you an answer by itself or in fact there's you know conflicting evidence at that point you have to rely on reason and and you can still have credibility by relying only on reason, on, on rational rather than empirical argument. It's a different style of reasoning as long as you apply the same essential <clears throat> basic rules, which is you have to subject whatever it is that you're putting forward to critique. You know, you have a hypothesis, you have an argument, you subject it to... I th- I think one of the problems in popular discourse, at least, is that people conflate uh, evidence with reasoning. They consider them basically the same thing, or one is an extension of the other. That that sort of scientific reasoning is just a form of reasoning. That it it it, it seems reasonable to you. Or not, and that's why people dismiss evidence because they go, "Well, you can't trust studies anyway if it doesn't cohere with their idea of what's reasonable." And that's a failure of reasoning. In it's a failure of reasoning about the evidence. Yeah. So you know, to say you can't trust studies, well, that's nonsense. You can trust studies to demonstrate within the parameters of the study whatever it is that the study showed. Yeah. You know, as to whether it's generalizable, well, that depends on the nature of the study. As to whether it's, you know, and or you know, oh. as to whether it's flawed or whatever. Yeah. So if there wasn't a proper control procedure in place, if there wasn't, uh, you know, if it wasn't a double blind test of a drug, well, it's not so particularly reliable because that's the standard that we subjected to. But yeah, but it's not unreliable because it's unpersuasive, which yeah. I think is what people have started to do with. Yeah. Science or study, they say things like, "Well, that doesn't seem right." Yes, 
Yeah, it's just a mistake. It's a mistake about the nature of the tool. Yeah. Um, and I think it's because there are proliferating things which purport to be evidence, like polls, for example, which seem to be, which are in a form, a scientific study. They're a, they're a questionnaire or they're sort of a, a qualitative, what yeah, is it called? Qualitative, a qualitative yeah. study. But because they don't seem to be borne out then by outcomes, this poll showed this or this poll shows this, but it doesn't actually prove or preempt a political outcome. People go, well, you can't believe polls, can't believe studies, can't believe science. There yes. is that. There is that kind I of. I think because they're looking for it to be something that it isn't. Yeah. You know, there's no. You know, what we call a fact, it's a really complicated thing. You know, what we call a fact is something which, subjected to a rigorous procedure of testing, comes up as the best answer for now. And that it's not perfect doesn't mean you should dismiss it. You know, that, that, it, that it can be then improved upon or uh, falsified doesn't mean that you just ignore it. It just, it just means, uh, it, it, in fact, it means that because it's being subjected to exactly that kind of scrutiny, it's a superior um, information point to anything. It's far superior to anything which hasn't been subjected to the same scrutiny. That's what a fact is. Yeah. But I think that it's a, it's a bit, it's not easy. It's a big ask. You know, you certainly can't use that um, circumlocution every time you want to talk about facts. Yeah. But, you know, I don't think that we were particularly well, you know, we were amazingly lucky. Both of us had a very good education. But at no point were we really formally taught how to reason. You yeah. just sort of are expected to absorb it by osmosis. I think it would be really great um, for kids, you know, it's, you've got to be a certain age, but say, you know, by the time you're 14 or 15, to be introduced to these concepts and of basic reasoning, interpreting evidence, what evidence is, um, you know. Yeah. I've been just... thinking about this recently because I'm, as Dad keeps reminding us, coming of the age where I have to consider my fertility. Um, <laughs> 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 Good times. Uh, so... There is that thing of thinking, well, if I do have children, how will I educate them? And I don't think the school system is necessarily the place to do it. I think that the... I don't know Are if there's a better... Are you going to have creepy homeschool yeah, children? Yeah, I think creepy homeschool <laughs> children is another thing. I don't want to have creepy homeschool children, but equally, other than getting socialised, like that schools made sense at a time when the institution was the place where learning resided, where information was limited to or um, uh, agglomerated in institutions only. Ooh, wow. So you're saying schools don't make sense anymore? Yeah, yeah. Because what they do is build people who, above anything else, don't cause trouble. Yeah. And conform. Like, your primary job in school is not to be difficult. Well, it's, it's, I think it's to be well. If you go to a very good school, it it's a little bit better than that. I'd say that that's a bit uncharitable. I'd say, 
it's to be difficult only within the parameters that you're permitted to be difficult. Yes. So if you've got a really good teacher and they 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 have enough confidence to allow students to take them on in a discussion, then you're you know we do, we had great classes with uh, kids who were all bright and arrogant and learned in a really great way, which was being humbled, not humiliated, but humbled mm. by being outsmarted by be- teachers who were just better than them, you know. But that's the privilege of kids who, who are lucky enough to have really good teachers. Not everyone has that. And if you don't, and if you have a teacher who's either not capable of yeah. sparring with the kids or not confident enough to, then yes. Or kids who are not arrogant enough to question the like. Or a culture in the school where... Where if it's not the teachers who are um, belittling that kind of endeavour, then it's the kids themselves. So I think, but again, you are acknowledging that that's an extraordinary school situation and you can't build policy (laughs) or decisions around an assumption of extraordinariness. If, If I can't afford to send my children to the most excellent private school which has this culture of learning and intellectual honesty and, and acceptance and difference and, you know, all of the things that your school had. And my school didn't really. Um, if it doesn't have... If, if I can't afford that, what do I do? How do I, how do I make sure that my children are... Well, I think you... Exp- I mean, to be honest, you expose them to good podcasts... Yeah. I think that 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 the things that have broadened my intellectual horizons the most in the past few years, one without a doubt is just this this you know particular intellectual endeavor that I'm undertaking right now, which is trying to make an original argument and kind of well realizing how really difficult it is. Uh, which which immediately inclines me to be more charitable to anyone who's trying to reason, honestly. Um, yeah, so there's that, and just re you know being forced to to realize that there are a lot of really smart people reasoning about a problem and and writing about it and communicating about it and and you know it's it's a that in order to to understand anything you've got to think about it a lot and you you're not capable. Most people are not capable of coming at a problem on their own. And that's, you know, and we have these amazing institutions, either actual um, formal institutions in the sense of universities and think tanks and schools that, that are devoted to cultivating that kind of cooperation because cooperation is what it is. It's co- collective thinking and reasoning. And also that we have these more invisible institutions of, of conventions of reasoning, but they are somewhat being eroded, um, you know, just in... In, in, in all kinds of ways. Um, you know, but what you say about schools is interesting. You know, on the one hand, yes, there is that pressure to, to conform and not make trouble and to respect authority. But on the other hand, this, we're in a situation now where everyone feels entitled to participate and everyone ought to be able to participate but not everyone is particularly well equipped to participate in public discussion of anything 
Yeah. Um, and that's partly because the schools didn't anticipate the kind of public discussions that most of their, you know, there's a, there was a sort of elitism that the people who are most qualified would discuss and they would communicate in these particular fora, which is academia, academia and then journalism. Um, and then that was that. And so you wouldn't have to worry about the plebs. And I use that term ironically, I don't mean it seriously, but you wouldn't have to worry about anyone else, you know. Um, Unqualified people even being allowed to yeah, that's access right. the, the platform. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right, being allowed to access the platform. And so that, had, that was beset by its own problems. It was unrepresentative and it was um, conceited and it was inegalitarian, but it did have the advantage of... Limiting bullshit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously there were terrible newspapers and... Or at least channeling bullshit. Yeah, channeling bu- bullshit is a better way of putting it. Curating. Yeah, curating bullshit and, and uh, you know, there's a certain amount of reliability there. But this, the situation now is capable of being superior. Mm. You know, there is, in general, I think, more good stuff that is out there. It's just that the tools that are available in terms of search and filter and and also people's intellectual tools, uh, people are, you know, are, are not doing the job of, of promoting a healthy discussion. Hmm. Um, but, you know, it's really tough because as soon as you start to suggest that people ought to be, you know, subjected to this set of ideas and this set of, processes and not what they actually choose for themselves well that starts that's pretty that's pretty horrible too Mm. um i don't really know the answer but anyway i mean this all comes this is i suppose it's all within the ambit of what i'm talking about so yeah back to the original number one that we had on our list of talking about doing a phd yeah what exactly is it I saw a PhD, I mean, I don't exactly know what it is until I'll be done. That's part of the problem. I don't know what it is. It's but it's technical details. Yeah, it's going okay. dimensions. Okay, so I'm doing a PhD in law, and I'm specifically focused on, on legal theory, on jurisprudence. Uh, so I'm, I'm writing about what a particular law is for, and, uh, you know, about, and there's disagreement about that, and then how to evaluate it, um, how to describe it, work out what it actually does rather than um, um, you know rather than analyzing um, actual uh, although I do analyze cases but you know rather than analyzing a particular doctrine in the law a particular set of rules and kind of tidying them up which is which is more what you'd call black letter um, black letter analysis but there is some black letter analysis you want to do but I'm writing about um, what, what a particular law is for um, but what's the nature of the endeavor is to write an original argument about anything in the field of law, um, to, uh, to review the relevant literature. You know, at a certain point, you were sort of, there was an expectation that you, you reviewed all the literature in your field, you know, and not that long ago, but now that's not, I don't think it's even humanly possible because it comes out at such a rate and there's so much of it. You know, you can't review all the literature, so you have to sort of functionally have reviewed the literature 
relevant to the point that you're making. So that in that way, it, it's different from writing a book because in a book, no one wants particularly to go through a whole, just a litany of... And then he said this, and then he said this, and then he said this, and then she said this. Yeah, Ooh, a lady. Yeah. There's a, it's a huge challenge to do that. I find it incredibly challenging to um, convey the literature of you, you know, and it's sort of an abstract idea that I've done it, to convey that I've done it to this, whoever's going to examine me, without, for, you know, without doing that. In a way, it's um, sort of interesting because it has to be readable as well, Yeah, right? it has to be readable. So that's one thing you have to do is do a literature review. How long is the PhD? It's 100,000 words. Over? It's over, you know, anywhere between... I, I know of people who've done it in two. Uh, and I, at the beginning, thought, well, you know, I don't see why I shouldn't be able to do it in two. I'm, I'm you know, I had tabs on myself. But it's only a very special kind of very disciplined and... Uh, very, very well. You have to be um, outstanding in some particular way to do that. Either very disciplined or just very smart comes easy to you, or or very clear on your idea from the start, or very experienced and coming in to write the PhD after a lot of experience and just knowing what you want yeah, to say. Yeah, knowing what you want to say, but but part of the point of a PhD being as long as it is is to give you the room to. Well, yeah. Part of the point of the PhD is knowing what you want to ask. Um, rather than what you want to say. You know, you read so that you... You read, you have a sense of what you're interested in. You read so that you know what you want to read. You know, you, 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 you find out information so that you know what, inf what other information you want to find out. Like, that's a, the huge... You know, the, the first year is kind of doing that and, and sort of trying to sort of write in this half-assed way. Some people write really well. For me, I didn't. Um, so it... it and then realizing that you know your the sense of um, uh, your own sense of your ability to say something very quickly gets eroded. You know, you realize how hard it is to to argue about something really complicated, hold it all in your head at the same time. You know, you intuit, you have, you, you're used to kind of forming an opinion by. You know, it's like if you see if you see an image in, in front of you, you absorb the whole image in one go, or at least you know, to all intents and purposes. Yeah. yeah, you see something, and you know. But if you were asked to describe an account for everything in your field of view, in a in a, and then also to limit that to a certain length, it's really difficult to do to know where to start and and to know what's important and to what order to describe. Do you describe yeah. the big things first? Do you describe the temperature in the room? Because it's not just the things in your view, it's the things that you're receiving impressions of. That's right. Which and is the kind then, of meta-analysis of this yeah. is what people are generally interested in, yeah. these are the lines, yeah. So I, I you know, it, it's, it was way harder than I thought and uh... It's also because you take it more seriously than well, a lot of people. Yeah, I think everyone takes it pretty seriously. I'd say I take it less seriously because I'm a bit older than your average PhD kid. I think if I'd done, like, you know, if you did this in your early 20s, it would destroy you. Mm. Um, it would just destroy you because, you, because you, you've chosen to do it. You've chosen to spend enough time. So there's this psychological pressure to conclude or to at every juncture make it meaningful 
And so every choice that you make, you know, is justifying the fact that you has to justify to you the fact that you've taken out all this time from real life to do it. Yeah, I think in your early 20s, though, you don't really have a sense of what real life is that you're investing this time mm. in. You Often PhD students are doing it to extend a stay at university, to hold off the real yeah. world. Whereas you are at this point where you're married, you know, you're in among people who have these quite high-powered jobs, your social circles, are sur- you're surrounded by all these people who are like, buying a house, hitting goals, and you're like, yeah. oh my God, am I living the right life, or is this a hiatus? Yeah, but that's not the problem. In a way that yeah, I think people yeah. in that's their early 20s don't, don't have that. But the intellectual problem, I don't, yeah, but it, the people in their early 20s identify with their work. And how and some I suspect have not don't have the perspective on uh, life and and their own insignificance and and so then it becomes really you know it's a real ego struggle because your ego just gets beaten down daily it's a process of failing to say what you want to say all the way up until the point where you finally get succeed or compromise and say something else usually the latter so. It's massively, uh, if you don't have a, if you haven't situated your sense of identity in the right place, it's, it's a, you know, you just, if you're conceited enough to really um, think that your personality rides on it and that that matters to anyone, then yeah, it hurts every day, I'd say. Brutal. Yeah, <laughs> brutal. But as soon as you accept that actually the nature of what you're doing is, that's what you're doing, you're just failing until you either succeed or find uh, an acceptable compromise, then, you know, you don't take it so hard if you can if you can just take a step back every now and then. And that that's worthwhile. That's a worthwhile um, use of your time. The noise in the background is the road, by the way, where it hands flat. Yeah. In London, which has... Uh, very nice location, but also a road right next to it. Um, so, did you want to talk about the next thing, or do you feel you've addressed the PhD sufficiently that people would understand what it is? I don't know. Did you want to ask me anything else about it? Uh, if anyone listening wants to ask, just email me at alicealfraser at gmail.com and I'll pass it on. Perhaps a word of advice to anyone who wants to do it. Um, 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 um. If you want to do it, you should do it for the right reasons. Um, what are the right reasons? Well, there's no, there's no general set of right reasons, but they ought to be a set of uh, reasons that are right for you. So one of those reasons might be it's a means to an end. If that's your reason, make sure it really is an efficient means to that end. You know, don't just do it... Yeah. Another reason is because you want that experience. Um, you know, you want the ex- the the challenge. Um, if you don't want the challenge, don't do it. It's a horrible challenge. It's not fun for most of the time. You know, it's like running a marathon. Uh, most of it's pain until there's satisfaction. Um, uh, and don't do it because you think that you're going to change the world with your PhD because it's going to be much smaller and more insignificant than you may think it will be. On the other hand, if you're a scientist, then do do it because, you know, <laughs> you've got way more, um, way more 
helpful goalposts to kind of help you contextualize more brain. scope to actually change the world in some measurable way yeah it's not that you can't it's just that it's very unlikely <laughs> well speaking of changing the world topic number two people are we've we've somehow changed the world to a point where people are incapable of having intellectually honest arguments I don't think I think plenty of people are capable of having intellectually honest arguments, but I think that in the public. Yeah, there are a whole lot of weird dynamics in the public that make it really tough. That make it really tough for um, reasoned um, conclusions to influence people, well, or, so you're or a... for them to be for reason, you know. For reasoned conclusions to be more influential than, than unreasoned ones, that's, you know, that's what's tough. Yeah, I think it's interesting as well. I mean, you're a Sam Harris fan. I am, although I know a lot of people think he's a bigot. Yeah, but this is one of the interesting things, this idea that Sam Harris is a bigot. I don't think really holds up to listening to him or reading his stuff for an extended period of time. He's a possibly a contrarian. He's deliberately difficult and deliberately unappeasing unapologetic for his ideas but I think there's a really interesting thing where people write someone off someone's arguments off in full because there's one conclusion that they don't agree with or one element of the argument or the reasoning chain I think like that's one of the things that you learn with logic which is not all chains of reasoning are linear and unbroken often you have a reasoning web. And somewhere in that web, if there's a conclusion that you disagree with, if it might be a structurally integral one and therefore destroy the whole web, but one question that you should ask is, if I disagree with this conclusion or this element, does the rest of the web still hold? And very few people ask that question ever now. They're 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 looking for one weakness to junk the whole and perhaps that's why rigor is not respected because as you say that's exactly the what you know that's a really good metaphor for a rigorous argument which is to start at the outset on the expectation that 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 you know your conclusions and your premises are open to challenge and so to offer a few alternative ways of reaching the same conclusion um but if the response is going to be to write off the whole web on the basis of one non-integral part, then there's no reward for being rigorous or there's no additional credence given to the rigorous argument over an, uh, an argument that's, that's purely rhetorical or purely... Well, see, it's interesting. I mean, this is sort of tangentially related. I, last year I got a really good review from one of the kind of harder critics in Edinburgh... Copstick, Kate Copstick, who writes for The Scotsman, who is notoriously doesn't like female acts, very co- controversial. She posted uh, an article onto her own Facebook page, um, which was anti-Semitic. And she may have commented something like, an interesting read or something. Really brutally anti-Semitic. Like when you click through the article, it was really it was about why ISIS should bomb the Israeli pipeline. Like it was a, it was a bad. Eesh. 
she didn't respond for three days to people's outraged comments of like, why the fuck have you done this? What is this? Why are you, are you supporting this? What are you saying about this? And then she came back online and said, hey, sorry, I'm in Kenya. I haven't had internet access. I just thought it looked like an interesting headline and posted it to my website, to, to my Facebook, so I could find it later because she's like in her late 50s and doesn't know how to use the internet. Well, that sounds like a bit of a cop-out, but it's a reasonable defence. And so it's a reasonable... The point being that when I was like... The other day I came here and I was like, blah, 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 my reviews, this, 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 cop stick, I should try and get her again. And someone was like, oh, she's an anti-Semite. And I was like, oh, is she? (laughs) I don't think so, because that whole... There's nothing about that chain of events to me other than the one thing that she she posted, not saying I agree with this, an anti-Semitic... She, you know, amplified an anti-Semitic voice, either deliberately or non-deliberately. There's nothing about her behaviour other than that that would indicate anti-Semitism. But now she's had that label put on her. People are kind of dismissing her as a comedy critic, which has nothing to do with yeah. any of that. So I'm, I'm interested in that, in that sense that, you know, you say people call Sam Harris a bigot. That's a really easy way to dismiss... Well, Sam Harris is unfortunate because, you know, people... Some, some criticisms are sort of reasoned and, and you know, and, and argue in a kind of a cogent way why his why his opinions or the way that he expresses them are, you know, liable to, um, to, to influence bigoted people for the worse or to encourage bigotry or whatever. But a lot of them, you know, there's incredibly dishonest and uncharitable quoting of him that goes on. The one that he offers an example, you know, sometimes the one that he gives as an example. And I mean, if, if someone did this to me, I just, I don't know what I would do. So he, his, here's the argument that he made. So he was making an argument about particular manoeuvres that people, that people make when arguing, one of which is to say X is natural, therefore X is right. You know, this particular thing is natural and therefore it's right. And he said, well, that's not a very good argument because rape is natural. And, you know, immediately, you know, everyone was... <laughs> all his enemies and all these people were just posting all over the internet, just smearing him, saying, you know... The memification of, like... Sam Harris, you know, loves rape. Sam Harris says rape is only natural. Sam Harris says rape gave us an evolutionary advantage. You know, Sam Harris didn't say that. Sam Harris said there could be evolutionary reasons why rape and the impulse to rape survived as a means of spreading genetic material. And it could be perfectly natural, but it is absolutely abhorrent, appalling, wrong, and the fact that it's natural ought to give it absolutely no credibility or value or anything, you know, but... He was using it as a way to discredit yeah, so, the idea so, that naturalness I mean, people is do. itself a justification, and then people hopscotched off the idea that he was discrediting. So yeah. <laughs> by natural, he must mean good when he was yeah. saying, yeah. let's stop using natural to mean good. Yeah, so it... and, and and there is no, <laughs> there is no... That's brutal. It's just, if someone did that to me, I mean... I would be so angry. You would just, it would just, it, it, the level of hurt and 
and just rage that you feel. He see, I mean, he's he's obviously frustrated, but he seems to take it in his stride. Mm. But but you know, there's no. Well, I think he takes it in his stride because he's partly deliberately. Yeah, but the problem, the real problem is, you can get away with doing that. How can you get away with doing that? You know, it's defamatory in the extreme. Um, I don't know whether in America the defamation laws would let you sue someone for defamation for saying something like that or for for misquoting you in that way, Mm. misrepresenting your opinions in that way. Um, And and defamation is a pretty, you know, talk to David Rolfe about defamation. Um, (laughs) Yeah. It's a really tough, it's it's problematic in itself. Um, But, I mean... What do you do then when 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 intellectual dishonesty is just rampant and yeah that is a really and respected pe- people's people's status you know the people who 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 made this maneuver seem to be just doing fine yeah you know that sort of thing like yeah, in an academic field as an academic if you misattributed a quote like that that is unethical in the extreme and it ought to be a black mark against your career, you know? Yeah. In the same way as, as plagiarism is a... Is a yeah, there's mark. nobody but, saying... What? But it's not an argument now. Like, there's, it's not in the, in the ether for people to go, you said that this person said this when they clearly didn't mean like you took them deliberately out of context are you an idiot or are you malicious no one says that i've never heard well, that said. i think that i i suspect i Except suspect by there's the a sort of, well i suspect there's probably a proxy war of you know sam harris fans and glenn greenwald fans who say similar things. fight it out against each other in forums and posts and have flame wars about it but that's pretty I mean, tedious. The but I think that's one of the things, as you say, oh, well, there's, the schools don't, there's no place for schools or schools no longer serve a function. And that's probably true, but without various institutions of authority and principle. I'm not saying that, no, 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 you're misquoting me. I'm not saying the schools no longer serve a function. I'm saying that I am concerned for my hypothetical children because I'm not sure that the education system as it stands is would be the best thing to do for my children. That the assumption that that's what is good for children, to give them a, a conventional education, I don't know if I agree with that assumption anymore. Well, here's what I think. Given that a lot of people who are successful according to the terms of traditional education systems are very unhappy. Yeah, but everyone's unhappy. The thing is, nothing makes anyone happy except being happy. Um, and, and being and being ethical, you know, I think that people have this mistaken idea that you know some magical element is in their life is going to make them happy. The answer is not that. The answer is, you know, minimize the things that make you unhappy. <laughs> you know, to the extent that you can, and the and the nature of life is, it's always going to be a trade off. And it's never going to be a perfect trade-off. You know, if you minimise one thing that makes you unhappy, you're liable to open up room for a different kind of unhappiness to creep in. But you've just got to work out which one is less. 
and deal with it. Suck it up. <laughs> That's my perspective. But to, to return to the question at hand, which is about schools, well, yeah, so I see we, we're short on time. Well, on the one hand, yes, is it going to be good for your kids? The good, the advantage of a good education is the systematic nature of it and the accumulation of a kind of a base level of information and and skills that equip you to distinguish between nonsense and sense and uh, and you know you're learning in an order that if you receive a bad idea you are equipped to deal with it you know i think that without some sort of institutional framework that is agreed by experienced people who've thought about it and, and you know set a curriculum um, come up with an idea of a canon well a person who learns by themselves is liable to get some, you know, be exposed to something silly early on and not be equipped to deal with it. Mm. Uh, so I think that schools and education institutions have that advantage. It's just that they need to do more. They just need to do more. They need to be better. Yeah. They're definitely better than nothing. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't again not yeah. saying that they're, that they're not that they're worse than no education or as I said weird homeschooling, but I just I think that that's something that's just been concerning to me recently. I think that not only are they worse, given they... that the result of the schooling system nationally and internationally is the public discourse that we have now. <laughs> I think we can do better. Yes, but I think that that's. A bit of a false flag because it would be worse. With none, of course, it would yeah. be worse. But I'm saying for my children, I don't know if I want to give them that because I don't know if my kids are going to be particularly smart or not. I assume they will be. Well, intelligence to all uh, appearances is mostly learned. There are some aptitudes that are relevant, but mostly it's just learned processes. Did you get that off a science study? I, I, um, yeah. Seems reasonable to me. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, well, I got it from, from an, an authority on the subject. Good stuff. Where can people find you online? If you Nowhere. want them to hunt you up? Nowhere online. I occasionally post sort of rants on Facebook. I might start a blog to express Yeah, rants. you do good rants on Facebook. I approve of your rants. They're very articulate and considered. And thoughtful. And it is annoying. I mean, well, fa I kind of just think, well, Facebook, that's what Facebook's for now. But, you know, it might be better but rather than imposing... There's about five people who, whose posts I will think of as really, like, worth reading, almost as articles. So I think you should start a blog. But I'll tell people when you start a blog. Otherwise, if you want to say something to him, email me, alicerfraser at gmail.com, and I will pass it on. I'll have him on to answer all your questions. Or I'll just answer them by email and you can post them on your Patreon. I can post them on my Patreon, patreon.com slash Alice Fraser. Uh, thank you for listening. You're having tea slash nutritional smoothies with Alice.